0: We are resuming our study in Romans, so let's turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans um, is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the saints in Rome, and it's been called the gospel according to the Apostle Paul. What is the gospel? Well, it's um, simply good news. Paul would describe it later as the glad tidings of good things. Specifically, uh, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Who needs the gospel? The apostle addresses this question in the uh, three chapters, the first three chapters of um, What we call the Book of Romans, and last week he identified the Gentile. The Gentile needs the gospel. He's um, ignorant of God's law and uh, willfully chosen to ignore God, and has uh, dived into um, various sins. And uh, the Gentile needs the needs the gospel. This week. We're going to look at a man uh, we're going to call the self-righteous moralist, the self-righteous moralist, and we'll explain more what that means. Next week, we'll look at the Jew who boasts in his knowledge of the law. He needs the gospel, too. And then the week after that, uh, Paul says, all, all uh, stand guilty before God and need the gospel. So this... Um, The news of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross of Calvary is good news. It's the gospel for uh, for needy sinners like we are. Last week, Don ushered us into a courtroom where the Gentile was on trial. The Gentile had chosen ignorance over um, acknowledging God, and as a result of his willful um, ignorance... Um, he had um, engaged in some horrendous crimes against the Lord. Last week's lesson should have left no question in our our minds as to the danger of being ignorant of God, especially when he has given us witnesses. Uh, He's given us creation. Creation sings of order and uh, design. And it's um, becoming more and more undeniable as um, scientists break into new discoveries in uh, microbiology and um, medicine. Um, the uh, astronomers um, discover the expanse of the universe, and all these things speak of not just the design, but the power of God, the, uh, his magnitude, his, um, uh, his greatness. We have... Um, not just creation, but conscience. God has given everyone a conscience that, um, that tells us right from wrong. And granted, we can wear that conscience down, but um, God has given that to us, and uh, it's another witness of his existence and power. And then there were lessons from history last week that, um, that really underscore, they, they emphasize. God's, uh, God's power, God's existence. And so there's no excuse for the Gentile. We're going to continue in the courtroom this morning briefly. And we find another who is guilty. And he points at the at the Gentile and he condemns the Gentile for his um, for his crimes. He said, You're guilty. You are uh, you're wicked, you're evil. You, uh, you've done wrong against God. You've committed crimes. And um, Paul anticipated that. He recognized that this, uh, this man with the outstretched arm and the pointed finger is a problem. He's a, um, he's a real problem. So in today's portion of Scripture, he's going to turn his attention to him. He's going to address the need of this um, self-righteous moralist. With that, we'll read in Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. And that's our self-righteous moralist. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man? You who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or, you, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who, by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without law, but as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. That's a lot. Uh, we're taking on a lot today, so we should uh, ask the Lord for his help. We ask you again, Lord, for your, um, your assistance in uh, extracting the uh, truths that you have here for us to apply. We're so grateful for your word and how you tell it like it is and you address problems. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at the, um, self-righteous, uh, the self-righteous moralist and the three excuses that he uses to try to justify himself. The first one, in uh, verses 1 through 5, we look at his indignation over the sins of others. Okay? Uh, Verses 6 through 11, we will address the favoritism that he he imagines himself to be God's favorite. And then uh, the third excuse that he, he gives his, uh, in verses 12 through 16 his privilege or familiarity with God's law. We've already said um, that the self-righteous moralist was indignant toward this sinning Gentile. Gentile's on trial, and the, um, the moralist is just heaping more guilt on him. You know, you, you've, uh, you've done wrong, you, um, you sin against the Lord. You're guilty. Um, indignation. What is indignation? Well, <clears throat> it's anger. Simply, it's uh, displeasure. It's outrage. Um, according to the dictionary, indignation. Uh, this anger is good. It's a healthy and a proper response to injustice and oppression. We, um, we should condemn the moral failure, the uh, unrighteousness, the wickedness today. It's difficult to read the morning news without having a sense of anger at um, at the wrongs that are being done in society. In fact, um, Paul commends the Corinthians for their indignation in their response to sin in the assembly in his... Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 7.11, we read, You sorrowed in a godly manner what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So we see that um, indignation has its place. It has a very important place, a necessary place in uh, our response to, um, to evil. The Lord Jesus was indignant toward the Jewish leaders in the synagogue when he healed the man's hand on the Sabbath. He looked around at the Jewish leaders with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. So we see that, um, that the Lord Jesus exhibited this, um, this holy uh, anger toward toward those with their hard hearts. And we're not responding properly if we don't judge, if we don't condemn unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, and the list goes on. Our indignation becomes a problem when we condemn others and do the same things ourselves. That's a problem. By condemning others, we admit that it's sin. And by practicing it in our own lives, we are condemning ourselves. We're, we're saying that we are committing the same crimes, and not only so, but we're being hypocrites about it. We're, we're telling others, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You're wrong. You're, um, you're evil, and so that's, uh, that's hypocrisy. So add to the self-righteous moralist, he's not only disobeying God, but he's, he's being hypocritical about it. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are who judge or condemn. The word there um, Paul uses for uh, inexcusable. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. The same we could translate as um, without defense. Hey, you have no defense. You have no legal leg to stand on in this courtroom. You're without excuse. You're inexcusable for your uh, self-righteous condemnation. Um, Verse 3, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Indignation is good and proper in response to unrighteousness. Indignation is bad when we practice the same things for which we condemn others. Indignation is fatal when we try to approach God on the merit of our self-righteous condemning, our pointing the finger at others while we do the same thing. The self-righteous moralist that Paul addresses this morning is uh, claiming his fitness for heaven based on his condemning of others. He's, um, he's seeking to escape the judgment of God. He's saying, how, look at me, Lord, how fit I am because I'm, uh, I'm condemning uh, sin and others doing the same thing himself. Would some examples be helpful? Let's, um, let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Kings And chapter 9, or scroll there on your phone. And let's look at the example of Jehu. Jehu was um, an interesting character in history, and the Lord ordained him through um, the prophet Elijah in verse 7, 2 Kings 9, 7. He tells Jehu, "'You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master,' that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. And so the next uh, chapter and a half go through Jehu's um, uh, very efficient and effective um, cutting off uh, the house of Ahab. He kills the, um, the family of Ahab in response to the Lord's Commission his anointing, and it, it, even at some point in uh, chapter ten, verse sixteen, he um, he calls uh, he calls a companion. Um, let's see, Jahanadab, uh Jehannadab, and he says uh, to him, "Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. <clears throat> I've wiped out the house of Ahab. Come, come into my chariot and and uh, witness." My zeal for Jehovah. And in um, verse 10, also, this continues with him wiping out the prophets of Baal. He gathers um, all the prophets of Baal and um, uh, he uh, he wipes them out in his uh, zeal for the Lord. And yet, Jehu failed. In um, chapter 10, verse 31, we see that Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who had made Israel to sin. Jehu was quick to condemn. He was quick to execute, quick to wipe out the, um, uh, the offenders of God without having forsaken idolatry himself, the worship of false gods. He's the prime example of a self-righteous moralist. He had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It was a misplaced zeal. Okay, so there's uh, there's an example. There's another in, um, in the book of Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel ministered to the Jews in Babylon about 600 B.C., and he tells the, the Jews uh, he, um, in uh, Ezekiel 16.52, he says, Samaria did not commit half your sins, but you have multiplied your abominations more than they and have justified your sisters by all the abominations which you have done. You who judged your sisters, bear your own shame also, because the sins which you committed were more abominable than theirs. They are more righteous than you. Israel, um, Israel condemned Samaria for their idolatry, for their um, their disregard for the law, for the Lord. <clears throat> and uh, the Lord says through Ezekiel, Israel. You, um, you've done worse than your sister, your half-sister, Samaria, in, um, in your sin. Fast forward to the 1980s. There was a, a fiery television and radio preacher. At the height of his popularity, he broadcast uh, weekly to over 3,000 stations and cable systems Worldwide, he was a worldwide um, preacher. I remember, I remember seeing him on TV and feeling the blast of his um, his indignation as he was condemning uh, sin, <clears throat> sin in the church, sexual sin. He was a, a, a fiery preacher. L.A. Times. Uh, said that he advised Christians against going to movie theaters or uh, dancing or even aerobics uh, that might activities that might arouse their sexual passion <clears throat> okay so he 's just a firebrand he 's breathing fire against uh, immorality in February of 1988 he was found in the company of a prostitute in a New Orleans motel. later testimony and his later conduct proved that these were his practice and not um, a one-time occurrence. The preacher was quick to condemn immorality. That's good. The preacher was practicing the sins he condemned. That's bad. If this preacher approached God on the basis of his self-righteous condemnation of others, That would be fatal for eternity. Examples of God's, uh, of those who um, condemn others while doing the same thing themselves. There are some characteristics of God's judgment that we would like to point out. In verse 2, God judges according to truth. Jesus taught, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. We tend to, to look at people if they're, uh, if they're well-dressed, if they're attractive, if they uh, have a place in business or society. We tend to say, well, um, must be a righteous person, must be a good person. Jesus says, don't do that. Okay, Judge with righteous judgment. See beyond the superficial. God does. He judges according to truth. In verse 3, we find that the judgment of God is inescapable. If you do not repent, if you do not come to God on his terms, uh, you will not escape his judgment. Um, God's judgment in verse 4, we're going to find that it is delayed, that um, God is not slack, he's not, um, he's not lazy, he's not <clears throat> afraid to judge, but he, he can delay what we deserve for mercy's sake. God's judgment in verse 5 is cumulative. We, um, we treasure up wrath. It's stored up. It, it, we keep uh, throwing more into the pile. It doesn't go away. And then in verse 6, we see that um, God will render to each one according to his deeds. That word render means to repay or to reward. And God God renders um, according to our works, according to our actions, our deeds. Interesting. God doesn't have to do that. Uh, God sees the motives of our heart. He sees, um, he sees our, our direction in life, and yet He chooses to, uh, to judge on the basis of deeds. And I believe that this is because we may argue about our motives. We may uh, say in the secret of our heart that uh, I meant otherwise. But what we do, what we say, is uh, undeniable. It's um, uh, we can't. We can't falsify that. We can't argue. This is what I did. God says, uh, God will judge for what I did. There is relief for the self righteous moralist in verse 4 and 5. We read of the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and long suffering knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance. In um, Psalm 130, we read, Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. We've been talking about the judgment of God and um, the fierceness of his judgment, the uh, uncompromising judgment that God has, and yet here's a break in the clouds. There's a break in the storm. The sun is able to shine through. And uh, we see that God is making a way for this very um, self-righteous moralist. Paul says, don't despise the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. Despise means to think lightly on. Despise means to to push it aside and say, well, you know, that's great, but uh, I'm not going to think about it. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. We kind of touched on that in our worship meeting this morning. God is, is good. Goodness speaks of His kindness and of His grace. He, um, he desires to be, uh, and He is, good, and He does good. The goodness of God bring, uh, leads you to repentance. If we... Um, We look at the original word there. It means actually to to bear, to bring, to carry. Allow the goodness of God to carry you to repentance. Forbearance is a delay of punishment, a suspense of wrath. Not an elimination, not a doing away with wrath, but a delay, a setting aside. Um, Sorry, a delay uh, of um, God's punishment. Long-suffering could be defined as patience, self-restraint in the face of provocation. It does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish. Long-suffering is the opposite of anger and associated with mercy. So these are, these are characteristics of God. His goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering... And we're not to think lightly on those. Praise the Lord in wrath. He remembers mercy. In Second Peter 3, 9, we read, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. In other words, God's not being soft on sin. He's not being light on sin when he does this. Um, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And later in that same chapter, uh, Peter writes, the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. So it's not just the terror of um, God's judgment that should uh, bring us to repentance, but it's his goodness, it's his kindness, it's his desire for your eternal, ultimate, infinite uh, welfare, your benefit, God's so beneficial toward us. What is repentance? Bill MacDonald, in his uh, commentary, re- uh, defines repentance as an about-face, turning one's back on sin and heading in the opposite direction. It is a change of mind which produces a change of attitude and results in a change of action. It signifies a man's taking sides with God against himself and his sins. Repentance. We um, we see an example of repentance in the prodigal son back in Luke fifteen. The um, the prodigal son's out there uh, feeding the um, feeding the swine, the pigs, and uh, he he wishes that he could eat the pig food. He's so starved. He's so hungry. And he remembered the abundance of his father's house. He remembered how good his dad was, and. Uh, he rose and went to his father with, um, with a heartfelt sorrow for his wrong, and his father received him. <laughs> that, um, that prodigal son repented of his, um, the wrongs that he'd done against his father. He said, Father, I'm not worthy to be counted among your servants. Make me a hired servant. Not worthy to be counted your son. And um, really, the opposite of one who condemns others is the one who um, judges himself, the one who um, condemns himself. And we see an example of that in Luke 18, the, um, the tax collector. In the temple he prayed afar off and he, he cried out to the Lord. He said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He mourned his wrongdoing. He recognized his spiritual poverty he esteemed himself more fit to be judged than to judge. We call this um, self-judgment. He was, um, he was pointing the finger at himself, saying, "God, uh, I'm worthy of your judgment, but I, I plead for your mercy instead." And the Lord Jesus said that instead of um, finding the treasury of God's wrath, he found the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering uh, in Ephesians 1 Paul writes in God's beloved we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace riches of his grace so we we should see that um, uh, Condemnation, indignation is not an excuse um, for the self righteous moralist. Well, what about claiming to be God's favorite? How's that? There are those who imagine themselves to be favorites of God, and to them, Paul warns God will render to each one according to his deeds. God searches the heart, but he gives. He repays, he rewards according to a person's ways, a person's doings, a person's actions. We read that um, very graphically in Jeremiah 17. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God searches the heart. He tests the mind. He gives according to what we do. And note the personalness in this verse. God renders to each. There's no hiding in the, um, in the crowd. There's no, um, in a photograph, you know, you can hide sometimes behind the taller person ahead of you, um, hoping that you won't be seen. But uh, each of us will have his day in court. Each of us will have his, um, his time before the Lord if he does not come to him today, if he doesn't come to him in his lifetime. And then in verses 7 through through 10, the Lord contrasts um, in verses 7 and 8, those who do good with those who are self-seeking, to those who by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality, God gives eternal life. To those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, God gives of his indignation and wrath. Then in verses 9 and 10, God reverses the order and he says that um, he gives tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. We we read those verses, and uh, admittedly, taken by themselves, they seem to teach that salvation is by works, that God gives eternal life on the basis of works, by what we we do. God judges according to our works, but he's uh, he's not giving eternal life by good works. We'll see later in his letter that uh, the apostle is clear that, that salvation is um, by grace through faith, not works. In, in Romans 5, he, said, he writes Therefore, uh, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then uh, very powerfully he states in his letter to the Ephesians, um, it's not by good works, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And uh, Brother Bill MacDonald in his commentary uh, points out that there are over 150 other portions of Scripture that, uh, that condition, that present salvation on the basis of faith and belief. And so we're not going to uh, be uh, unsettled by um, verses that, um, that tend to look otherwise. How, how then should we look at these verses? Um, consider that good works are the result of faith in Christ. And so um, I, I read these verses, and I, um, I like to uh, explain them this way. Verse 7, God renders eternal life to those who, after receiving Christ as Lord, by patient continuance in good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. That, um, uh, that is the result of faith in Jesus, a relationship with Him. And then in verse 10, Uh, God gives glory, honor, and peace to everyone because he came to Christ as Savior, works what is good. I hope this um, gives you some perspective on these these verses. In uh, in these verses, the phrase, uh, the Jew first, and also the Greek, shows that God will judge according to privilege and that the uh, Jews were first in privilege as God's chosen people, and so they will be first in responsibility. In summary of verses 7 through 10, the apostle sets before the self-righteous moralist life and death. He told Israel back in Deuteronomy, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and and your descendants may live. And uh, through the prophet Ezekiel to Israel, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance. Tribulation and anguish are not God's best for you. It's not his will for you. However, if you insist on obeying unrighteousness, God must render to you indignation and wrath. Would it help to consider examples of those who claim God's, to be God's favorites? Well, uh, the Pharisees come to mind in... Um, Arguing with the Lord Jesus, they, they claimed, we're, we're Abraham's descendants. We, we have no need for, uh, for what you're preaching. Um, we're, we're children of Abraham. We're special. John the Baptist warned the Pharisees and Sadducees, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. You may have the wonderful privilege of godly parents. What a blessing. What a a joy to have uh, that that heritage. Um, Godly grandparents. Godly great-grandparents. And yet um, none of these uh, carries uh, special favoritism in God's judgment. If anything, you have greater responsibility toward the Lord because of your privilege. Someone has said um, God has no grandchildren. Each of us must come to Him individually on the, uh, on the basis of, um, of our believing, our, our receiving Him as Savior. You may have unique ethnic heritage or political party affiliation or even royal blood, but none of these count with God. The purpose of Paul's argument in this section of our study is to show that God is unbending, he's uncompromising in his judgment, and he will render to each one according to his works. Paul closes his argument appropriately with the statement there is no partiality with God. There's no favoritism with the Lord. He treats everyone on the same uh, basis. Well, self-righteous indignation isn't um, uh, isn't an excuse. And um, uh, I'm not God's favorite. That's that's no defense. So the self-righteous moralist may say, well, I have uh, familiarity with the law. Uh, I have, um, uh, I know the law. And so uh, Paul addresses that starting in verse 12. He addresses two classes of people, the Gentiles who don't have the law and the Jews who are under the law. God will judge Jew and Gentile according to their privilege, according to the light that he has given them, according to uh, revelation that he has has blessed them with. Paul emphasizes in verse 13 that it's not um, merely hearing God's law that justifies a person, but it's doing the law that justifies. And Paul speaks hypothetically because no one has done the law. <laughs> no one has perfect, perfectly obeyed the law. But the point that Paul is making here is that um, you uh, self-righteous moralists think that because you heard it and that you're familiar with it that you have, uh, you have an in with God. And he says, no, you want to, uh, you want to do... Um, you want to obey the law, do the law, but you must obey it perfectly from birth to death. We can uh, we, we can expand this. Uh, Paul's addressing the law, but we could really expand it to all of God's word, and uh, and make it applicable today, and say that you you may have read the Bible several times, you may have. Uh, um, memorize chapters of God's Word, which is, uh, which is excellent, but that in itself doesn't qualify you for heaven. Um, in the case of a um, person who doesn't receive the Lord of the Bible, it's actually um, worse than useless, this familiarity with His Word. Though the Gentiles don't have the law in verses 14 and 15, they by nature do the things in the law or they feel obligated to. They, um, they know instinctively right from wrong, even though they don't have the, um, the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses. Paul says they become a law to themselves. That is, they develop their own moral code as they go. He says, the work or requirements of the law is written in their hearts. And uh, we saw last week how the conscience bears witness to them. In Romans uh, 119, what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Their thoughts, the Gentiles' thoughts, accuse them of wrong or excuse them uh, for actions that are allowed And in verse 16, there is that day when God calls the sinner into accountability, and there will be no secrets. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And finally, uh, Paul writes that um, these things are according to his gospel as, um, or as his gospel declares. In review, God is not fooled by the protests, by the condemnations of those who do the same things. Their self-righteousness is a thin disguise, a poor excuse, and he withholds judgment just long enough for people to make good, uh, to um, take advantage of his goodness and his long suffering and his forbearance. They, they come to him in repentance. Second, God grants no favor on the basis of heritage, ethnicity, social class, or natural abilities. God will render to each one according to his works. Third, God does not save people on the basis of their Bible knowledge. God saves people on the basis of their Bible application and they're realizing that they have a need, they have uh, a guilt before him, and that he's paid the full price through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, I have no defense except that Jesus died for me. No defense, no plea. My heart is leaning on the word, the written word of God, salvation by my Savior's name, salvation through his blood, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. I've asked David if we could sing that uh, hymn in closing. David? I'm going to pray, actually. Lord, we ask for um, application of your word this morning in the hearts of those who hear. We, um, uh, we pray especially for the... Um, the one who condemns others and does the same thing. We pray that um, he or she might see that that's, uh, that's a poor, uh, poor excuse, a uh, bad way to come to you. Uh, we pray instead that they'd come on the basis of faith and receive uh, our Lord Jesus as, um, as his or her Savior. We're so thankful in his name. Amen.